On Racing HQ, Monday's Experts, studying the form of racing's characters. Monday's Experts, he'd have always got the good oil, pity you can't put a bet on at the finish of a race. Welcome back to Racing HQ on this uh, Monday. It's five minutes past 11, and this week we've got a very special guest for Monday's Expert. It is my pleasure to welcome legendary sports broadcaster, Alan Thomas. Good morning, Alan. Hello, Anthony. Hello, everyone. It's great to have you on Monday's Experts. I thought it was appropriate, given that we've just wrapped up another successful uh, Brisbane Winter Carnival with the final group one of the season. Who better to have on Monday's Expert? Uh, you called uh, the races in Brisbane for many, many years. Uh, been retired since 2015. Let's go back to the start, though, Alan, and uh, just tell our listeners, what's your first memory of, of horse racing or horses? Well, I used to go to the races with my father uh, when I was only, you know, very, very young. Um, but my really first memory of racing, which really got me into it, was uh, I was sitting at home with my father in uh, uh, March of 1960. I was eight years old, mm-hmm. and I sat there and listened to Tullock beat Lord and the Queen's played at Flemington after Tullock had been off the scene for 20 months and almost died, and Smith, for some reason or other, decided if his first run back after that, he'd take him to Flemington and run him against Lord, who was the undisputed weight-for-age champion of Australia at the time. And uh, he and Tullock went hammer and tongs from the 1,000 metres, and Tullock got his nose down on the line and beat him before a crowd of about 93,000, I think, went to Flemington that day to see him come back. And I was sitting on the on the on the carpet in the lounge on the on the radio in those days and I heard the race and from that time onwards I not only became a, a fanatic of Tullock the horse I then really started to have a a feeling about the racing industry and I used to go to the races a lot um, and then that just followed on and uh, even when I played school sports, I tried to, you know, my rugby I had to play in the afternoon, but the tennis, I was in the tennis team, I used to try and make sure that I got the matches over quickly in the morning so I could go to the races in the afternoon. Mm. So that was, that would, Tullock winning the Queen's Plate, which is now what probably call the Australian Cup, um, was probably the start of it. Well, it wasn't probably, it was the start of it. So that obviously sparked your interest to want to be a, a sports broadcaster and a race caller in particular. I've heard stories of guys like you know John Tapp that used to roll marbles and and paddle pop sticks down the down the gutter uh, and used to call that. I know myself growing up, I was a, a freak at collecting race books and just reciting different races on my grandparents' veranda after I'd been to the races on a Saturday. What did you do as a kid uh, outside of just going to the races? Well, my father, um, dad obviously was um, away during the war and whatever, but he he was um, he was a, a passionate lover of the racing industry. So what he did, he actually made up his own racing game. So what it was, it was a board which was say seven feet long. So what's that, two and a half meters or so? And then he'd have fishing line 
through the noses of metal horses. There were seven or eight of them. And then the, the line went into a box which you would wind up. And depending on, on the rotation and how the coil of the line was determined how quickly or slowly the horses went. And we used to have racing nights. We had our own betting boards, and that went on for years. In fact, that's how I actually met my mother through this game after the war and or before the war. And um, we had a brand, of, and, and we, me and my brother, we'd sit there for hours and hours and have these racing games, and we gave all these horses names, mm. and uh, we would call them off the board. And uh, we'd have our mates around and in the school holidays and things like that, and that and that game stayed in the in the family for for ever. I think the board is still around somewhere. I think it's at my my, bro, uh, my brother's place. But um, yeah, so we did that. But I also went I also went to the races to see. I wasn't there for Tullock's last run um, when he won the Brisbane Cup, but I was there for the O'Shea Stakes on the Saturday, and I actually saw him win. And then from the time I heard him on the when on the radio, then I actually saw him. I remember my father hoisted me up on his hips so I could see over the top of the crowd and I could see him run past. Um, so from that time onwards, I was then, what, I was eight, mm. same year. And then by the time I got to about nine, oh, maybe even from then onwards, I got to find out that I could remember the horses by the colours that the jockeys had. And... I could do that, and I thought, well, I came from a, a rather sporting background. I was born near Suncorp Stadium and lived there, which was close. My dad worked for the Forex Brewery, and he was there for 40-odd years. And then we were close to Suncorp, where I used to go and practice calling the rugby league in my teenage years. There was always a spare box there. And then um, the Milton tennis courts were just down the road, so I was a tennis player as well. The Ithaca Bar swimming pool was right next to Suncorp, where it is now, where I used to swim. So my whole life, and, and we had a Queenslander in a big backyard where we could turn it into a football field, a cricket pitch, a race course. We could play the British Open there. We had one green uh, with one hole, and we had 18 different parts of the, the house that we could play the, the British Open. So I was always in a sporting field of life and then when I got to about you know, 10 to 12 I thought well I'm not I wasn't I wasn't dumb at school but I had no interest in it and even though I did pass grade 12 during the tough subjects I never had any other thing I wanted to do in my life but to be a sports commentator and a race caller so school to me was a challenge because I didn't really want to be there but it was very good for me because I became a prefect when I in my senior years, and that gave you responsibility. Um, I made most of the sporting team, so that was good. So it gave me something to do. But in the back of my mind, I always wanted coming up in a sporting background. Like in the school holidays, all the kids around the streets, they'd all come to the Thomases because we had the best yard. Mm. And they'd come at 8 o'clock in the morning and leave at 5 o'clock at night. That would happen every day of the week. And if we needed more people, we went down to the Milton State School, which is just down the road, and they had the big grounds where we could play bigger cricket, bigger football games. But sport was always my life. 
So if you were taking yourself to Suncorp Stadium as a, as a teenager to practice calling the footy, at what point did you start to take race calling a little bit more seriously? And in order to do that, you've got to get to the track. I mean, I, I get asked often, um, you know, how you get started. And a lot of kids these days would start calling off the TV. But you've got to do the real thing. At what point did you actually start doing the real thing? And did you pick it up easy enough? Oh, yeah, I found, I found it to be uh, a natural thing for me. So when there, there were a couple of spare broadcast boxes at Albion Park, um, when Larry Pratt used to go away for the ABC, I would use his box for a month or whatever to, to call the races and practice. And then I was very fortunate in so much as that when I left school in 69, so 12 months later, actually it was the 1st of January 1971, the Gold Coast Turf Club went into Saturday racing. They were a metro, they were a midweek club, but they went to Saturdays. And of course, Keith Nowd and Vince Curry and Larry Pratt, the race callers, they all had to be in Brisbane. So they needed, they needed a race caller. And and John Keith, who was a, um, a very very competent caller, writer, and trainer of uh, greyhounds, um, we both applied for the job. And the, the the Gold Coast Turf Club did a very smart thing. They employed both of us. Um, to call on alternate Saturdays in case one got sick. So if they only had one caller and one went down, they would have struggled to get another one. Mm. So I started there 12 months after I left school. Wow. And so I never really went to the bush and called it my, you know, my first start off of broadcasting races was at the Gold Coast Turf Club, which is the reason why I finished there. Um, I thought if I call my first race there at the age of 18, I can finish my last one. So that's why I went back to the Gold Coast for my last day. And what else were you doing in those early days? Obviously, you know, the Gold Coast would race on a Saturday. That's only one day's work a week. How did you supplement your income elsewhere and what were you doing? Well, I got a job working for Queensland Primary Producers, which are a wool-broking company. Who they eventually amalgamated with a, a company called McTaggart's mm-hmm. and they became Primac. So I worked there during the week and I called the races at the weekend. I also did some writing for the Koori Mail, doing stories down there. And then um, I got from there to 4BC. I got to Forbes. I started at Prime, Primac in early 1970. And I got to 4BC in about 75, 76, just part-time sales and doing some sport and um, TAB updates and that sort of stuff. Then I went to 4KQ. They came into races. And whilst I was at 4KQ, Channel 9... And decided that they were going to have a sports department. They didn't have one. And leading into the 1980 Olympics, um, they approached me and said, look, would you be interested in coming to Nine uh, to do all sports? And that I, I was interested in. Um, the racing at 4KQ was coming to an end. I was doing part-time stuff for Nine then. I eventually went there on a full-time basis and I stayed there from 1980 to about ni- to 1993. And then I went back to Sky Channel and I stayed there till I finished uh, in 2015. So tell us about those early days with, with Nine. So we're talking early 80s. My memory yep. of you growing up was, you know, you caught a lot of State of Origins, but Commonwealth Games as well in the early 80s. What what were you covering back in those days? Well, I co- well you covered everything, being a, uh, working out of the newsroom. But I was, I was fortunate enough to be um, selected by David Hill, who was the... Uh, the greatest sports director, producer, whatever you want to call him, 
that I ever knew. David David Hill was a man who had who knew all what he wanted to do. He he um and he had he had certain rules, and if you broke them, that was the end of you. And he picked me to go to the Commonwealth Games with John Famishon to call the fights. And then on the back of that, um, when Jeff Fennick uh, fought for the world title, Channel 9 had the rights for him for 12 months or so, and I was fortunate enough for David to pick me to call Fennick's first two world title fights, which we had the rights for. And then um, 80... What was it? 80... When I call my first origin, 87, um, I got a chance to call my first origin game. I called 15 of those. And then I, I came back to... Um, Channel 9 was changing. They, they they decided to get rid of the Queensland. So they had two commentary teams. They had a New South Wales one and they had a Queensland one. Mm. And then they made a decision that they were going to get rid of the Queensland one. And they said, oh, if you want to do anything in, internationally or nationally for the Nine Network, you're going to have to come to live in Sydney. Well, that was never an option. Mm. So I looked around and and then um, the Sky Channel job was was always sort of in the background and that came up again. And then I applied for that and got that position. And then uh, that was in 93 or whatever it was. And, uh, and that took me through till I, I finished at the Gold Coast in 2015. But, you know, I, you know, I, I, I enjoyed the fights. I, I got to call Costa Zoo very early, and I got to call Costa Zoo's last world title fight win in Australia before he lost to Ricky Hatton in England. That was at uh, Etihad Stadium, as it was then, with the roof over uh, in Melbourne. Um, I called Jeff's first couple of world title fights. Got to call with him as, as my co-commentator, and... Uh, I've got a lot of time for Jeff. We're, we're pretty good mates. We don't see much of each other, but you know, when you're the caller and you're the fighter that wins the title, there's always some sort of relationship there. And then uh, international golf tournaments, um, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever mm. came up along the way. I called the Sheffield Shield final and the Sydney Cricket Ground. So there was all all odds and ends, all odds and ends. What 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 we did. What about coming back to Sky in '93? You said that the Sky job was always in the background in those days, and I think Brisbane now is really the only metropolitan track in Australia where they have two broadcasters calling the same yeah. races. Back in those yeah. days, how many callers were calling the same meeting, and and what were the circumstances of you going back to Sky? How well, did that opportunity well, come up? Well, Wayne was calling for Sky, for BC, and, he, and the PA. Mm. And there was a thought at Sky that maybe we need someone to spend more time on doing stuff on the channel. Right. And to do that, they had to find someone separate. Right. So that's how that came about. Um, when I first went to the races, we had there were three broadcasters. There was Keith Nowd on 4BK, and it was the on-course broadcaster. Vince Curry from 4BC, he came down from Toowoomba. He was an outstanding broadcaster of anything and everything, Vince. And uh, Larry, and I learned a lot from him. And Larry Pratt was on the ABC, so there was three when I when I first started, and then um, when I came back to Sky, it was two, and it's been it's been there. Uh, Sky they've had their own caller ever since, where, um, where Josh Fleming calls there now. So um, it's just been that way. Where in the other states, as you know, as you pointed out, there's only one. Mm. There's Darren Flindell in Sydney and Matt Hill in Melbourne. Do you think these days it's easier? or more difficult to get a start as an aspiring broadcaster. I know, I mean, in your day, 
they didn't have the internet. So when I first started broadcasting, I could I could post race calls on on YouTube, for example, and I could send them out to country clubs and get an opportunity that way. But these days, there's only one break, only one race caller at, at each of the individual tracks, so there's less of an opportunity. But there's Correct. probably more of an opportunity to get recognised. What are your thoughts on that? Well, naturally, with only basically one in, in every state, and Adelaide's the same, mm. um, um, and, and Perth. Obviously, the the job numbers uh, are down. In 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 Sydney, when I was first started off in Sydney, I think they had four. They had Des Hoisted, they would have had Jeff Marnie, the ABC, Ken Howard, and, you know, and Tappy came along. Um, so the, the the job numbers are down, but yeah, you're right. And from a marketing point of view, you can get your talent out there. Back back years ago, all you had was a tape recorder. I mean, when I first applied for a race calling job, it was in Sydney, um, and I had to fly down with my tape recorder. <laughs> And go to Two UE on the North Shore, meet Mr. McLenahan, who was the boss at the time, um, and play the races on a tape recorder to me. Wow! And then get in the plane and fly home. Extraordinary. That's the only way. You, that's the only way you could get a job. Yeah. And um, I end up doing some work for Two UE later on in years, and and I remember thinking at the time, I've got to pay for air, airfare down and back, and then. Um, no, no guarantees. There was no position or anything. I was, I was just throwing my hat into the ring, so it cost money to go down. And my, my thoughts from the time I started in the broadcasting game was, if you want something bad enough, you've got to have a crack at it. Yep. So when I left school, um, I went to the track every Tuesday and Thursday morning and helped um, the, the clockers at Eagle Farm. Um, Jungle Green was there. He, he was, he was an institution. Um, Jim Anderson clocked him for the Courier Mail, um, and I used to go and help him. And then Garth Stubblesfield used to clock the horses at Doom, but most of clock the horses, and they used to have a, a radio show every Saturday morning on track, like track talk. So, you know, you come on and spoke about what you'd seen gallop during the week or what you thought, you know, could win or whatever. And then, so I did that every Tuesday and Thursday morning in the cold and the rain and the wind and all the rest of it. And then one day, Jim Anderson went on holidays and he said, oh, I'm on holidays for a month. Can you do my show, my, my track work show on, on um, Orby K, I think it was, at the time. So I got sort of known a bit that way. But you had to, you had to go, you had to go mm. and get, get out of bed. And I, mean, I wasn't a great lover getting out of bed at four o'clock in the morning two days a week and then go to work on top of it. I didn't go home and have a sleep. I went from there to Queensland Primary Producers where I had, had a full day's work. But if you want... You know, my, my attitude was if, if this is what I want to be and this is what I want to do in my life, then that's what you do. I remember once I was on a holiday in Sydney, I got a phone call from Jim Anderson said, you know, this, we're, we're short, we need you back here tomorrow. And I had to get in, the, get in the plane and come home and cut my holiday short. Yeah, and I, don't, yeah. I don't think that's changed at all across the board. I mean, I did something similar when I started my broadcasting career. I'd get in the car and drive to far out places at non-TAB yep. meetings and call a meeting and turn around and come back. And I know my panel operator, Nick Kutniak, does very much the same, calls a lot of sport and does it for the love of it. So that's not changed. No. Well, it's a, it's, it, it's a very unusual occupation, what we do, Anthony. Mm. And it's, it's, a, it's a gift of what we're given. You can't learn. I mean, I've... I've seen people, I remember one day, I won't say who, how, why, but someone at the Gold Coast Surf Club turned up one day in the spare box and was 
going to be a race caller, a teenage person. Hmm. And I said, well, why is that? And this person said, oh, I've got a photographic memory. I said, oh, well, okay. Well, race ones will be on shortly so you can learn the colours and I'll have a listen. So by the time the race was finished and I got off the air, this person had gone, left the track and gone home. Too hard. It's too hard. You yeah. can't. <laughs> it's, it's, I, I, I try to explain to people, if people always ask me, you know, and they'll ask you and they've asked all the race callers over the years, how do you remember the horses? Mm. The only way you can remember the horses is by the colours that the jockeys carry and you have to then associate a set of colours to a horse's name. And that's the only way it can be done. This business of thing, I'm go by the numbers and all the rest, it's a lot of rubbish because you can't see them. Mm. Now, um, can you learn to do it? Can you um, have a university degree to go? No, not. You're born with it. It's a gift. It's like someone who can paint or someone who can draw, an artist. They're born with it. As they get older, they get better at their craft, like we do, mm. as we mature as people. But to actually do it, you're just born with it. Mm. And that's it. There's no other... There's, there's no other way to explain it because it's it's unusual yeah no i I couldn't agree more uh we'll push on in those 22 years at sky racing you called some uh champions across that time i just want to touch on a on a few horses in particular and 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 perhaps get a a comment Mm -hmm. on your memories of those uh kingston town winning the the queensland derby early on that was well before you came to sky but what are your memories of kingston town well just to see him you know the, the thing i I spend a lot of my time now, Anthony, going to, the, going to the big races on the eastern seaboard because I've got the time to do it. Whereas as a race caller, obviously, you don't. So my, I go to all the big races in Sydney, Melbourne, uh, spring and autumn that I can get to because I want to see the good horses. Mm. I want to see the good jockeys and I want to see the way that these trainers, these brilliant trainers in this country prepare these horses for their races. And when Kingston, Kingston Town... He, there was only about four runners, I think, in the Derby when he won, and he, he was coming to the end of it because he'd won the Sydney Cup, the Derby in the Sydney Cup as a three-year-old in Sydney, and Tommy tried to do the same with him in Brisbane, but by the time he won the Derby, he only won by about a length. He, he, he was flat out. He, he, was, he, he was at his tether then, and then, um, thankfully, Tommy stra- uh, scratched him out of the Brisbane Cup and he didn't run. But just to go to the races and see him and just to see the horse and... To call him as, as a as a young young guy back in those days, um, it's just it's just one of the one of the great memories. Black Caviar, two thousand and eleven, that famous call. I think it was win number thirteen. Unlucky for some, not this one. How much thought did you put into that? And was that probably one of the more nervous races you would have called? Well, the the thing about the Kingston Town and Black Caviar once is and Winks I got to call twice, but you only get one go at them. Yeah. And if you don't get it right, then it's it's not it's not a you're not a happy camper. Um, but black caviar, I mean, the, the, where, where that saying came from, I was walking on the beach with a mate of mine, and he said to me, oh, "Have you got a line picked out for black caviar?" I said, "No, I don't, I'm not, I'm not really a line type person. I'm not. That's not my." I mean, you take someone like John Tapp. I mean, in the middle of the Doncaster coming to the furlong pole, he can recite Banjo Patterson and get away with it, you know. (laughs) And he he come up with some great line out of a movie from John Wayne or something, and there's about eight fighting out the finish of the Doncaster. But he can do that. 
Sapi's just got that amazing skill to do to do that particular stuff. Um, so my mate of mine said, oh, you haven't got I said, no, I haven't got anything picked out. And he goes, you know, it's a 13th start, don't you? And I go, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah. And he goes, you know, 13th, an unlucky number. And, and I said, yeah. So that's where it came from. So then, then I went home and I just sitting down think, thinking about 13 and unlucky and then and then I just came up with that line and you don't want to get too far in front thinking no. about lines because it doesn't always pan out the way you want and uh, and that was the line I used in the race but I knew I'd only get one chance to call her and that day at Dubin was amazing the number of people in Dubin that day was just off the charts what about Might and Power um, a little way before uh, Black Caviar? Might and Power, yep. he was a terrific Queensland horse. Your memories on him quickly? Well, he won the, he won the Hollandale and then he won the Durban Cup. And the Hollandale Stakes, now you've got to keep in mind, the Hollandale Stakes when he won was run on a Wednesday. They had 8,000 people at the Gold Coast on the Wednesday afternoon that he won the, he won the Hollandale. That's and they had and when he won the Dubin Cup in Brisbane, um, the same year I think they had thirteen, mm. but they had eight on a Wednesday. You couldn't get into the you couldn't get into the Gold Coast Turf Club that day, and then uh, he just won so brilliantly. You know he um, no he was no he, he was a machine. We're going to run out of time. We'll probably go another five or so minutes and we're going to run out of time. We could do this uh, again next week and we still wouldn't scratch the surface. One thing that you perhaps don't get a, an, enough credit for is you've been a great mentor to younger broadcasters coming through, particular Josh Fleming, uh, Mitch Manners. You were able to mentor those guys early on in their careers and to see where they're at now, that must give you great satisfaction, Alan. Well, it does because no one gets to where they get to on their own. You know, you can't. When I started off, I needed all the help in the world. Mm. I had help from uh, Keith Nowden, the turf head of the Telegraph. He's a great help to me and educated me not only not only about racing and Vince Curry the same. Um, they educated me on how to conduct myself mm. in at lunches or functions or this, that, and the other. Um, when I'm talking to certain people and how they should be addressed, and it, I got taught a lot about off the track as well as on um and there's a lot there's a lot to it if you can if you can get the get the conduct right you know off the course it helps you on the course and i got a lot of help with that um i was also lucky i had great parents i went to a great school i went to maris brothers rosalie i had a, a great education i had a good family and a great parents i had a i had a lot of things in my favor when i started off and you know, the hard days work for a hard day's pay and make sure you're put in and don't let anyone down and all that sort of stuff. Um, that was sort of educated into me as a young man and I and I, I try to keep that even in the latter years of my life and with the younger kids coming through and teach them a lot about off-the-track stuff as well as on and the off-the-track stuff's a big help to them. I remember talking to Josh Fleming once uh, early on when he was uh, when he was learning in a spare broadcast box and you were critiquing his race calls and he'd called a race and he went to you and he and he played it and he thought he'd done really well he couldn't find any mistakes and he said to you Alan what do you think and you listened to it and you said oh two or three out of ten and Josh was said Josh said why and you said to him well you didn't call the favourite 
when it when they jumped. And I've never forgotten that as a broadcaster. And I don't know if you've picked it up in my brace calling. The first horse I always call out of the gates is the favourite, and that's because I got that indirect advice from you. Well, that's good. At least I'm still still helping someone around the place. It's nice. Well, the thing is about the favourites, of course, most people are on them. So, yeah. um, you know, you so you, you need you need to know. You know, you need to know where they are. Mm. And the other thing that young broadcasters need to know, and I used to get the boys to write this down, rip a page out of their race book and put it in their wallet so they understood because race callers are sports people. We're like cricketers and footballers. We go in and out of form, like jockeys, and, mm. and it happens. And I, what I said to them was, write this down and never forget it. And when you're in trouble, go back to it. Say what your name is. And their job description is this. I am an employee of the punter. Yes. And I must give the punter what he wants. That's, that's you know, that's your mantra. Mm. Now, write it out, put it in your wallet. And when you, I'm not here and you're having a bad day at the office, which you will have, take it out and go back to basics and start again and remember what your job is. Mm. Because if you don't know what your job is, you can end up in awful bother with it. Mm. No, it's good advice. And I've always said that to, to many people. They'll, they'll, they'll say, oh, do you have a bet at work? And, and I'll say, yeah, I'm a punter first and foremost and a race call the second. Um, that's me. Were you much of a punter, though, Alan? You know, I, I, yeah, I was when I was young. I'm not that I'm a big punter. Mm. But, but when I came back to Sky in 93, I just didn't. And yeah. I might, yeah, I just, oh, I might have five bets in a year. Yep. I mean, I so I I would sit home like I have a few bets on Saturday afternoon now. Um, sometimes I don't have any. If I don't find what I want to ha- what, back, I don't I don't just bet for the sake of it. Yeah. But I'm not. But what I do with the betting in my life doesn't change it one way or the other. Mm. It's just an interest, and you know, and you, you feel good if you go through a race and find something and put your money on and it wins, and you think, oh well, I, I do know something about this game after all these years. Mm. And look, just before we let you go, where can we find you these days? What are you doing with yourself? Uh, well, I, 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 live on, I live at the beach. I live on main beach on the Gold Coast. I've just gone back to golf after a five-year layoff. Um, How's that going? <laughs> uh, no, well, now I know why I gave it up for five yeah, years. It drives you nuts. <laughs> um, I'm a tennis player. I'm, in, in the summer, I surf most every day. Um, I have other interests I do. Um, yeah, so there's there's plenty. I mean, the last couple of years I've done um, over the last two years forty podcast shows for Radio Tab in Brisbane. So this year I took I, I took a year off just to basically do do nothing. There's a couple of things I'm looking at at the moment um, which I'd like to do. So there's stuff that I want to do and still do, but it's it's not something that takes up you know the majority of my time. There's a, there's other things that I need to do in my life as um, as well as you know, do some work to keep. You got to keep your mind ticking over. That's the name of the game. You got to wake up. You got to wake up and have something to do in the morning. If you don't, you're in all sorts. Yep. Listen, Al, it's been so so great to catch up. I really appreciate your time. We're going to run out of time, but it's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you. I know from from my point of view, it was listening up to listening to guys like you when I was growing up in the you know the early to mid nineties uh, that inspired me to want to be a race caller. So from myself, thank you, and from all of us at Sky Sports Radio, thanks so much for your time, and we look forward to chatting again soon in the future. It's a pleasure, and uh, 
Good luck in the third Origin game. You'll need it. We will need every bit of it. Good on you, AT. It's 11.36 on Racing HQ. That's been Monday's Expert.